Hey, I'm Jamie. I'm here with Florian, the entrepreneur, technologist, and man of many skills. That's very kind of you. Hi. Nice to have you here, Flo. Thank you. Nice to be here. Flo, how did it feel when you left university and the first thing that went through your mind when you thought, I have no job lined up and I don't want a job, <laughs> what am I going to do now? Yeah, um, that's a good question. It actually was um, quite a quite a trying time in some ways. And we studied together, so you went through this with me. Yeah, man. And you were on a very different trajectory, really. So we studied business science, information systems at UCT. And I think halfway through the studies, I realized quite quickly that I do not want to get involved with the corporate. Slowly but gradually, you get introduced to these corporates who might be hiring you as you graduate and always to me just seemed like uh, being a cog in a wheel part of a bigger wheel with other wheels and yeah it's kind of like you get lost so I had very much like a mindset um, for a longer time already that I want to do my own thing and um, in IS at UCT you have these projects which um, pretty much take up more than half of your time of yeah. the degree. Yeah, you're right. So even on those projects, you were showing that spirit that you wanted to go your own way. Precisely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, we were the first to start doing that really at UCT, I think. Um, so these projects, just for context, um, usually the, the premise of them is that um, you go to real world companies and they have use cases for you to solve. And then in a team of three or four, you spend the whole year operating like an independent uh, developer team, which in the end provides a solution for this problem, which might get implemented. And that's cool. But we were the first and third year ready to challenge that notion slightly and um, say, hey, we want to do our own thing. We'll find an independent sponsor that will help coach us and mentor us through the process. But um, at at the baseline, it's it's an entrepreneurial project. Um, so. I'm very yeah. grateful for having had that experience. That's so true, man. Because yeah, yeah, we were we were we realized at that time that we wanted to rather try solve the problem for real people and yeah. come up with like an entrepreneurial spin, create a system that didn't exist, create a company that didn't exist, absolutely, rather than work with another company and solve a little piece of something that was going on there at their company. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, and that came from you. That you were a big driving force of that for sure. Yeah. Yes. It's in your DNA at the time. It was in my <laughs> DNA, yeah. So um, the fourth year project, um, like essentially, I think we, we picked something that just was a bit too big of a chunk for us to chew at that point in our career. But um, we were trying to build this um, payment system which allows you to buy things online and uh, pay for them at the retailers. And that at the time existed in in uh, direct integrations already. So um, you had ticketing companies that allowed you to pay here in South Africa for your tickets at pick and pay. And so we had a model for how the the user flow would work. Um, and looking at Europe, you had these middlemen that started to emerge um, for this particular service. And Germany, for example, is a very, still is, and back then also was a very cash heavy industry and it just mm. works nicely there um, and so we had a model of taking this direct integration in uh, that existed locally and we know the capabilities are there on either sides of the use case and apply this model that has been proven internationally and create a middleman that allows you to buy at any store really and uh, pay at the retailers and that was really interesting um, I mean we in the end I think I actually created a company for it and at that point in time when 
we were graduating, um, yeah, I, I didn't even think about looking at any of the offers that were coming through. And had from a, like, com from companies like from companies yeah. yeah yeah I didn't I didn't even put any intention behind that and um, yeah there was a lot of uncertainty but I pretty much spent the first few months after that um, continuing the development of um, of the system yes which was really rough because you and uh, our other two teammates categorically um, I think said that you don't want to go down the entrepreneurial route. Um, and you want to gain some experience, which I think is a great path to go as well, if you find the right fit. Um, and so I took this forward a little bit. I went into an accelerator. Was it? Um, then another opportunity came along. But I don't know. There. But it, what's so crazy? There, there wasn't much. There wasn't much uh, support or direction for that path. I think. Oh, absolutely. Like when you when yeah. you're graduating, it's all about you know have you lined up a job? Have you have you been speaking to companies? Companies come speak to you to try sell. They do. So there's, yeah that relationship is well uh, lubricated by the university. Absolutely. They really try to create that, which is cool. It's like, a good it's, thing. It's awesome. Yeah. It's really, really cool. But yeah, there isn't, we didn't, we didn't get any talks from accelerators or incubators. We didn't get, I can't remember if we got any entrepreneurs coming in. Jeez, I'm really sorry if there were any that I can't remember. No, we, we had Mark Forrester from, uh, oh, yeah, yes, from Movies yeah, awesome. and other people like that as well. Yes. So okay, Same so we on got you. <laughs> okay, so we got we got a taste of inspiration from we, these people. We, yeah, but, but we nothing around the practical. Nothing practical, yeah. Mm. But that's part of the the architecture of of universities. Correct. So yeah, I imagine that probably feeds into revenue models as well. I don't know actually. Oof, probably. Yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> we should know this. <laughs> yeah, but it's a good thing. I mean, most people do not go down the entrepreneurial route, so it makes sense to structure a degree around that. I think that, that as well, man. I think that like, what are the majority of people probably going to do? Yeah, I so, agree. I mean, part of the reason why you're starting this is because you believe that entrepreneurship is going to be more important in the future, and people should have more fluent ways of getting there. And it's it's it, there was a lack of you know, learning practically about what it means to be an entrepreneur. I mean, the degree does encompass it in, in some degrees, but For sure. the only practicality we really had were these projects. And it was great that we, you know, got the experience out of, out of them that we, that we did. Yes. But this notion that, you know, like there was a lack of practicalities was very clear in my head. And it was part of the reason why I didn't continue the project and took a really great opportunity that then presented itself. So it was sort of a win-win. Nice. Um, but I was very aware that I would not have been capable of pushing the system to market, especially because of the, the regulation around it. I mean, these APIs have to be super secure. Mm. And we had we had simulated systems out there that um, simulated the, the POS APIs. And, you know, we had all the calls working successfully and even the QR scanning was nice. And like the UX of the product actually, I think was good. Mm. You build a nice management dashboard. <laughs> and Yeah, um, it's an awesome project. I loved it. But to actually, get to pick and pay or someone like that and convince them that, uh, you know, this is secure enough with the tools that we were given. Yeah. It's been rough. Yeah. It's, it's crazy because it maybe did have a lot of potential, but True. as a student or someone who's just graduated, you have no idea. You've got no experience in big uh, enterprise integrations. Whereas, yeah, may, and that's kind of stuff you only learn with time in the game. Absolutely. But I don't know, maybe it's, it, what's so wild is maybe that was an incredible project that could have been picked up and benefited a lot of people, uh, not just the people who created the project, yeah. but I'm saying like... There the, was an impact the behind the... Yeah, 
Yeah, there was a value proposition. In. Yeah, the people of the country could have benefited from sure. that product, uh, project, but it just never saw the light of day because the actual practicality of getting it done was way beyond the people working on the project. <laughs> it's so sad. True that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, so I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Like the only way there's you got to yeah, you somehow surround yourself with people who can make that stuff happen. Maybe that's the that's the whole incubator accelerator idea. Absolutely. And I think over the years... I learned more and more how many resources are actually out there. I mean, once you start to understand globally what grants are out there, what what are some of the, the global topics that are trying to be addressed, and there is lots of funding out there. It's just that you have to know the processes and you have to follow them and jump through the hoops. And if you're building something worthwhile, and regardless of your skill set, I think, if you put intention behind it and you, you iterate on, on, on everything around what you do, you know, there, there are ways to pick up ideas and make them come to fruition. So there were multiple things that were lacking in our degree. This whole investor side also was yeah. very... I mean, there wasn't any... It wasn't a, it was a tech degree. It wasn't almost like... A, yes. It's an engineering degree, I guess. It makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> like that's, that is what we signed up for. <laughs> uh, but I wonder, so what would you do differently? Do you, could, have you learned now what mm -hmm. you would do differently? Who would you get in contact with? What kind of funding would you look for? Would you put together a proposal, like uh, investor deck and pitch to people? Uh, who would you get involved as team members? Mm. So maybe we set the scene a little bit, which is you finish university with a proof of concept prototype thing that yeah. can, can illustrate what the value proposition is. People go online, they purchase things, and then instead of paying online, they go pay at a retailer. Yeah. So you've proved that could be a thing. Now you actually need to build it and it needs to be secure. You need a big team behind it. What would you do differently? Well, you need an experienced team behind it. You can you can probably you you could have built or you can still build a, an MVP of that. That's quite rudimentary. Um yeah, so the first thing that I did was sign up for this accelerator, which really was a fantastic um choice, I think, because there, I think it was 10 days, uh, called TechQuala. Um, it's a UK-based company called Unbox Consulting that pretty much consistently has come to South Africa since then. Um, that was, what, back in 2015, I think. Um, and repeated this this process of this accelerator. And it, it wasn't a typical accelerator. Um, it was a lot more informal. And I think that was great. Uh, the, the main focus of it really was around Agile and Lean Principle, stuff that we had worked on at university already, but now I was able to sit very intensively pretty much right after my degree with these people and, and go through this hacky process of, you know, being really honest with yourself and uh, the quickest way possible figuring out how to fail and then make decisions from there and fail again and make decisions from there. So it was, there were things like the business model canvas and, and just mm. really getting into the depths of that uh, practical simple tools that are also used in consulting these days, which are very powerful. Were they trying to accelerate you through the whole business process or just the building of the actual product? So Tequala, I think there is a component of um, external people coming in and there are definitely opportunities to uh, connect with investors, to connect with uh, mentors, to, to take things further, but it's, it's more like a boutique accelerator. Um, there isn't the massive machine behind it. It's a bunch of passionate entrepreneurs that kind right. of want to give back and do it in a very unique way. Mm. Um, 
And I think the most profound thing about it was just the the, the process of um, going through the motions of understanding how to drive and execute on, on an idea and get the practical tools or reinforce the practical tools that are most important to, to help you come to realizations quite quickly. Um, and the, the realization that I came to at the end really was that this thing is uh, like, I haven't figured out a way how to MVP this properly um, in a way that it's feasible for me to do alone. Mm. And I knew at that point that uh, like, I don't want to take this forward. And then I was just fortunate enough to have, you know, been in a position where some other people approached me at the, pretty much the same time. And I just fluidly transitioned from one into the other, yes. not even ever having thought about creating a CV. I think I created a CV for that position, but it was just one informal conversation. And then, because there were relationships that existed already. So, yes. Yeah. But even that, it wasn't a job necessarily. You were partnering up with people, right? Yeah. So pretty much I, um, I took on a, a pretty big role. Um, I, it, it was, um, it was pretty much um, like a flight booking system um, for for the South African charter market to begin with, and it was based on on novel concepts of facilitating this booking transaction. Um, but sorry, what was the question? The question was: it wasn't a it wasn't a proper job that you went into. You were actually partnering up with these oh, people. Oh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. So um, it. It was very much that kind of situation. I took on the role of CIO um, and then later on became uh, founder or co-founder of, of, of the company. Um, and they had been building at it for a while already. They had some investment prior and the job basically entailed taking the system that was built um, through this outsourced company, uh, which was built on uh, Mendix, which is a platform as a service which is used um, for some banking systems uh, across the world um, and, and other things. Um, and they've, they've really done a good job at thinking about each and every eventuality of this use case, which essentially was um, taking passengers from A to B and instead of how you would do traditionally or how you do nowadays still in, in um, the aviation market, instead of starting with supplies, the starting was actually putting an aircraft out there and putting risk behind it and scheduling it, um, starting with demand and then dynamically matching that to, um, to airplanes. And in that process, uh, as efficiencies kick in, as for example, an aircraft is filled more optimally, um, give kickbacks, give, give rebates to everybody involved, but more so to those who came along earlier who would have started at, um, at a higher price. So they really thought about this, this business model in a, in a very deep manner and... Um, yeah. The main founder had been thinking about it for a long time. So the system that they had built at that point was a direct mirror of, of all of these complex thoughts. And I think the main part of the job was to simplify that mm. and figure out a way of how to actually get, to get it to market quickly because funding also wouldn't have lasted forever. Was it still being built? The system was still being built? It, it was very close to completion. There were different versions and okay. uh, there was a working version. It just didn't really catch on in the market. And there were different reasons. So the pricing algorithm was not dynamic enough. It, it had funny spikes that needed to be smoothed out, for example, but then also just the whole UX needed to be simplified. The, um, the use case actually wasn't B2C, it was B2B 
on both sides of the spectrum. So you have the system which sits in between uh, aircraft suppliers who load their aircraft on the system. And on the other hand, you have um, uh, large tour operators who then have their booking teams book on behalf of passengers and all come with aggregated demand already, right. which made the model work really, yeah. really nicely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, man, you pick these big projects to tackle that are so... Because <laughs> what's tricky with it is to to get it into market requires you know, a huge, complicated system. Um, yeah, so did, you, did you ever think like it could have been prototyped more simply without a system? Like could have been prototyped with a, yes. Goog a Google Sheet? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, would ha I almost hate to say this publicly, but... Um, we, we did do that at some, point, at some nice. point, actually. I mean, I hate to say it publicly because, whoa, no, anybody can. No, but I'm absolutely <laughs> happy with that. I think this actually is an idea that I'm, so some of the underlying economic algorithms I'm still pursuing and they haven't yeah. left me. And I think the world needs to know about them. Um, but yeah, so like one of the first tasks really was to evaluate why why is this the case? You know, why why aren't we getting to the target audience? Who is the target audience? Because there were different ways of going about it. You, you could have also gone to the end consumer, etc. Um, I think one of the biggest hurdles in creating an MVP in, in, in that marketplace uh, specifically, I mean, flying passengers is not a joke. And yeah. um, insurance and regulation around that um, was quite important. So we also had a legal team internally that made sure that all of that is kosher. Um, and Within that, though, if you if you were within within those regulations, you could still have offered the service based on a sheet, um, and we ran a lot of simulations on that. But I think we never actually used it in the practice. No, we we did use it actually for a few flights, and that worked quite quickly. Mm. Mm. And that helped also in in conversations with two operators, um, having proven the model and the the model. I mean. Um, it allowed for a very competitive pricing. So there were flights um, going in some of these uh, charter markets where you have, so in, in charter you have, uh, you have scheduled flights and ad hoc flights. And ad hoc flights just come up and that's kind of what we were trying to get into from an aircraft supplier side, those kind of aircrafts that are just sitting around. It's you call up and you get a really high rate and then you take your flight. Um, and scheduled flights are on a much lower rate yes. and they're usually slightly larger. So instead of a Seneca, like a four-seater, you, you would have a King Air or something, which is eight or ten packs. Okay. Um, and then they're just trying to fill that. And they know they can because two operators have almost guaranteed and, and fairly stable. It might fluctuate seasonally, but generally fairly stable um, demand that you can um, predict. So... Yes, um, so the... That's actually quite interesting. The travel, the travel, these people is predictable, but you'll still get people who need to fly at a random time, and you can always charge them a lot because they're coming out of nowhere. They're needing a custom solution. So then, are you trying to fill up the planes that are getting scheduled or the ad hoc planes? Yeah. So, so the ad hoc planes, the the aircraft suppliers that had these aircraft uh, sitting around, and it's actually frightening how many of them sit around and also how used they are to being canceled last minute, which was an important component oh. in our system. Um, so there's a point, there's a point where instead of them sitting around, it'd be better if they're in the air with some people on them. Absolutely. Okay. At a, obviously at a certain price point that makes it profitable. Okay. Well, nice. there, there was um, a way for them to actually, take the risk. So the, the system was very much a risk mitigation system for all these various stakeholders in, in this marketplace, which is just like 
flying passengers. Um, and there was an opportunity for, there were detailed uh, um, uh, variables which uh, documented the different aspects of a cost of a flight. And um, a lot of them were clumped together in, in a rate, which is uh, typical in the industry. And then we allowed them, so basically we allowed them to start with uh, a lower rate, which would mean that um, they could a lower rate than, than what their costs are, even if they want to. Because they're competing with other aircraft suppliers and trying mm. to get the first two passengers or the first four passengers. And if they have really competitive rates, then they have a flight that's a go-ahead and that flight um, will be filled up uh, more quickly than, than new flights coming on that same day because most right. people are a little bit flexible. And then price efficiencies really kick in. And then as more... So the first, let's... as a Maybe let's just go through a use case because this can get a bit blurry. Um, let's say the two of us want to fly from Joburg to Madikwe, which is one of the lodges. And we have option A, which is fly with uh, the scheduled flight. And we might each pay 4,000 Rand for that flight and then uh, sit on this 10-seater and be flown there and that's it. Um, whereas if the two of us flew through FlexiFly, through the FlexiFly system, um, we would actually be booking an aircraft that is sitting around idle, that's not really doing anything. And um, we would be getting a two-seater because we're only two people, we need efficiencies um, and that might be a Piper error. And um, we, we are getting that at a really good rate so that we can fly for the same price, 4,000 Rand each. But okay. underneath the hood, actually what, um, what happened is that the aircraft supplier took a little bit of a risk. So he might very well make a marginal loss if this flight actually goes because his costs are slightly higher. But it's a calculated risk. And then in return, the system rewarded him for efficiencies in this transaction. So let's say two of our friends coming along and they want to go the same route. That wasn't a problem because then <clears throat> he might have upgraded his aircraft to a four-seater. We fly on that four-seater and um, now there are higher efficiencies. Um, the, the price per kilometer rate is one of the most important variables in the pricing of uh, an aircraft flight. And it just goes up marginally more as you um, go right. to bigger aircraft. So the efficiency is already... And that would mean that um, the passengers get a kickback. So already you have cheaper prices than the competition. And the first two passengers, like I said earlier, so they actually are rewarded more for having taken the initial risk. Yes. We might fly now for 3,200 yes. and the, our two friends come for 3,400. And then the same way you can get efficiencies coming in the other way and you get really low prices. Okay. I wonder... But I so, wonder, yeah, so just to finish the point, yeah. um, the, the aircraft supply at the same time gets a higher kilometer rate as efficiencies kick in. So he might start at a risky price, but then end up earning more than he ever would have with a, with a fully loaded plane, even with an ad hoc um, rate. Right. So it was, it was a very uh, good sort of proposition, value proposition to the various sides of the marketplace because as a tour operator, you get really cheap flights. And as an aircraft supplier, you have a chance to utilize these these aircraft which is just sitting around and uh, you actually have a, a chance of making more money with them than you would have before yes and in a way it was taking away from it, it was a challenge to the existing scheduled market and it would have challenged um really the the capture of, of customers there and it would have funneled some of those through the two operators well, into the ad hoc market and made everything a lot more fluid well that's what i that's what i'm wondering is like what 
how would people's behavior would have changed? Because you could have you could have been running this stuff and people taking a certain um, amount of risk. Yeah. But after a while, you might find, wow, like because the service now exists, people are flying here instead of here. They rather are leaving things to the last minute because they know they can get an ad hoc. So they'll come in later. Absolutely. Yeah. So so all the behavior is changing. Then people, instead of taking your your regular big plane flight, people are now saying, oh, I'll just jump on one of these charters because it's... So you don't don't know what's going to happen with consumer behavior. And for me, an example of that is like when Uber being really popular challenged the rental car market, which was never like, so you fly into a new city and you don't rent a car, you just use Uber there. Whereas Uber was mainly, you know, the main thing was everyone was freaking out that it was taking away from the normal taxi market. Absolutely. But actually the, then the rental car market got taken out as well. So, well, okay, well, got um, affected as well. So I, I would... I'd love to know what would have happened. Like, would people... Well, we thought about this. Yeah, Um, I'm sure you would have. And so (laughs) what do you speak about here? Essentially, this is creating a disruptive system. And if you create a disruptive system, then then you change macroeconomic uh, behaviors or flows. And this is how you describe what, what Uber essentially did. And our premise there was very clear. And it still stands in my thinking today. This model, if if actually brought to network effect. If these demand aggregation network effects can kick in, um, first of all, you go away from an existing hub and spoke model, which is prominent um, across aviation throughout the board. Um, and once you start challenging some of the the, the larger aircraft with, with many more packs, and you, you find a way of introducing enough demand aggregation to justify the creation of, of flights on, on that sort of level, over time you would um, create much more of a peer-to-peer model, which is much more efficient because it brings people closer to where they want to be. It also um, has a, an appealing aspect from a security perspective. It's less overhead for a smaller airport to monitor uh, a smaller crowd and I mean security at the time and even now it's it's super relevant when it comes to travel um, yeah so th- so there, there are benefits to that and that's what it would have done on a macroeconomic mm. level in my opinion it would have changed and also um, creates, aviation to peer-to-peer marketplace yeah and also creates a new market like as you said a marketplace it creates a new market which then now peop- are people buying and selling planes to get into the market um, people start leasing planes in a different way Absolutely. Yeah. So the, the risk that was in the system, um, it, it could have been pushed further. For example, um, somebody else could bank on putting a flight out there based on prediction models that are already existing in this market because they're so important to the supply-driven model. Prediction is very sophisticated. So somebody who has a really deep insight into the marketplace could, for example, book seats like that was part of the the longer term play or the idea could book seats on behalf of other people almost as an agent and then use uh, existing uh, channels uh, sales channels that this person or this entity has to pass it on and through that receive some of the um, reward for the risk that was taken that uh, yeah that that normally would have gone to the end consumer yes Wow, okay. So, so it's like creating secondary markets too yes. around that, which would also, I think, be a natural progression of, of a system like this coming to fruition. Amazing. 
Why did you get into blockchain, Flo? <laughs> um, I, so I did this for two years um, and worked on, on this company. And we, we actually flew flights with it um, on the system that we eventually had uh, simplified to a large degree. But I think it just didn't work on it anymore on a cultural level. And there was a defining moment where we realized that... Um, you know, this is not going to work anymore. And there was a, a splitting process. And it actually was a shame because it was at a point where where we just uh, had started signing initial MOUs. It was two operators, which was sort of the big missing piece of the puzzle for us at that point in time. And we had all the aircraft suppliers lined up and had some good routes where money could have been made. You know, we made thousands of rands on some of these small flights and brought out prices that were very, very competitive, by far cheaper than... Um, those of the competition, but it just didn't work anymore. So I found myself at um, another juncture and um, I took a little bit of a sabbatical, I think a few months and I just did some housework and some sort of handyman work. And then um, I stumbled upon, upon this um, blockchain uh, hackathon, which, which was happening in, in Cape Town in the end of 2017, the beginning of 2018. And, uh, a friend of ours, Devin, who had studied with us, was actually organizing it. So I, I just joined the hackathon basically, and was introduced uh, in, into the Web three space through through that. That's so cool. So you just saw this thing was happening. You just thought, let me jump in, Absolutely. see what happens. I'm interested in it. Yeah. Actually, I think it's thanks to Saba that this happened. So Saba ah. was our lecturer, and and he had forwarded it to me. So oh, cool. Without him, I wouldn't have you know gone through the experiences I did go through. Um, but that was a really eye-opening moment for me, realizing what's what's happening on the cutting edge of, of emerging tech. Um, and the accelerator, was, uh, the, the hackathon was very um, Ethereum-focused, so you, you learned about smart contract coding and what the potential of this technology is, and you actually hands-on create a system that you know ha has a use case. I think um, I created, uh, together with Theo, and Theo, who I think now is one of the founders of Valor, um, which is like an exchange, um, and some others. We created a, an escrow system, which was quite cool. Um, but so, yeah. so the point of the hackathon. Let, let me just remember: yeah. hackathons are that you build things to completion. So, Absolutely. So did they teach you? They taught you a bit about the technology, the blockchain technology, yeah. Ethereum. Yes. Yeah. So, so you learned about Solidity, which okay. is the the coding language for smart contracts. Cool. And you learned about the basics. And uh, I was lucky enough to. I think all of us in my team were lucky enough to have Theo on the team because he was a seasoned veteran oh, okay. when it came to this. Um, and he actually was there as a mentor, I think, and he just sort of jumped on the teams and, uh, yeah, it uh, was, was really good to, right from the get-go, see how somebody works who, who knows what's going on with the stuff and to actually drive that, something That's actually, completion. yeah, that's actually, oh, man, I wonder, like, all the hackathon organizers out there, yeah. you should probably have some experts in there yeah. Because then you can actually get stuff out and get stuff done. It's so, I remember the one time I was at a hackathon type thing. It's kind of like a, a charity um, volunteer helping helping charities build websites so mm -hmm. that they could get their name out there, more exposure and stuff. And so we had these teams. And then I remember on my team, we were, I think we were building it on WordPress. And on my team, right. uh, the one of the guys was you know, really good at WordPress. 
and the speed that we could move at was just so much faster. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I could have, I could have handled it. Like I could have, but the fact that he was driving. It's a matter of velocity, yeah. Exactly, exactly. So I wonder, yeah, that's actually such a big deal, man. Hackathons mm. need to have, they need to have insert people who can do things quickly. Otherwise, you do just sit there fiddling around for a lot of time. Yeah, yeah. Cool, so man. the blockchain space, and I mean, I can mainly speak to the Ethereum community. It it does a fantastic job at facilitating global hackathons all the time at at an amazing quality. And the people who who are attracted to these hackathons also are top notch developers, people who work on actual projects, um, who are very successful already, and they intermingle with new people coming into the space. That's so cool because you're operating in an open source environment, and unless you um, unless you find an effective way to get more open source contributors, your protocol becomes, I guess, meaningless or less relevant than other protocols. Um, yeah, this is a huge right. component of, of this industry, which is why hackathons are run so well, I think. So, the whole, yeah, the whole premise of it is to get lots of skilled people involved. Yeah, it's very community-centric, and it's, yeah. it's, it's a good filter to also for people to check out if this is something that they're interested in because there are some, some very radical um, underlying messages uh, when, when it comes to blockchain technology and... Dispute ledger technology. Yes. Yeah. What was some? Did you go to other hackathons, other meetups in for blockchain, Ethereum? Like, what was your experience of those? Yeah, absolutely. So, at that hackathon, um, Devin, uh, one of the organizers who studied with us, uh, she was uh, running a company called Linum Labs at the time, which is still going greatly today. Um, and her and her co-founder Paul, back. Back then, were uh, focusing mainly on, on consulting work and uh, uh, building uh, proof of concepts in, in in the blockchain space for for corporates, uh, those type of things. But there always had been a big focus on community development, and because I joined them effectively in both in Linum Labs and then later on in in, in Protea as one of the two projects under the Swiss holding company. Um, they always had a big focus on community development. And so I myself, uh, I think I started the token engineering Cape Town community, had a lot to do. That's like a meetup community uh, where you just speak about token engineering, which is this emerging discipline, which is coming about um, as like a, as a movement from, from, from the space was, was a big call for rigorous processes behind these things that we're building because we're building such complex systems they, yeah. they need simulation for example and they, they just need to be treated seriously and you can't just put something out there have an ICO and um, bank a bunch of cash at least not nowadays anymore and even at the time I think often it wasn't the right call um, yeah so we've been building communities throughout that and uh, Linum Labs also ran some of the global Ethereum hackathons so uh, at Cape Town which was a massive uh, event at the waterfront with hundreds of developers and uh, everyone from the ecosystem really coming down um, to to be part of this last year. And and those kind of events I was part of, yeah. Why do you think that these technologies have such a cult following? And I don't want to, like, I'm saying cult, <laughs> I'm saying cult but, like, I'm not, I really don't want to offend anyone. But No, why, I think why there's you, an element to that. Yeah, for sure. why do you think people are so into it and they, and they band together? Well... I think it speaks to the zeitgeist uh, to a large degree, at least in 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 the, in the Web three space. Um, there there are many different trains of thought underlying what 
constitutes um, uh, blockchain technology, uh, a smart contract protocol, um, you are confronted with philosophy, um, with like political systems. You're confronted with finance. You're confronted with the history of money and like, mm. where the fuck does money come from and mm. what is it and why does it look the way it looks today? And uh, you're you're confronted with with very complex engineering uh, problems. And you do that in a community that um, is all across the world and and works in you know this big big scope yeah yeah it's got a yeah you reminded me it's got a bit of a revolutionary anarchist vibe to it so it's in some way absolutely I'm sure it's like so I'm sure these, it's not everyone but there's definitely a there's definitely that feeling that things could be better things could be improved the the system needs a needs an adjustment yes uh things are running in an old way and yeah there is some there is something very excited exciting about being involved in something like that yeah yeah so one of the first things that excited me about, um, and often this is, I think, the learning curve as you get into uh, blockchain technology and then, oh, you see Bitcoin and then you see, oh, smart contracts can do this and, oh, this has been built already and you realize it's, it's a massive opportunity to uh, create less friction systems and to um, disintermediate, uh, essentially. So that's one of the key initial things you realize are happening, but they are fundamental underlying um, conversations that that speak to global economics in a, in, a, in a very distinct way and i think it just creates a, a very particular kind of scenario where people who truly believe in this actually pour their life into into this technology because they want to be part of making it happen that's right. what's what's quite powerful about it yeah because it is a bit of a it's almost like a printing press internet moment it's a, if you you this could be the next flip where everything's running on a new system, there's access to more opportunity, more information. Uh, it affects the economy, you know. Yeah, so, okay, so people are trying to be at the forefront of that and they want to be a part of this next step, this next evolution. Yeah, and it's, like I said, it's a zeitgeist. I mean, it's 2020. Um, so many voices globally right now are speaking about sustainable business um yeah. and, and, and like even davos now the the key message was around that um and yeah there is just an element to it that resonates with people i think and they actually want to make it happen but i've gone through phases of thinking this is the most amazing technology out there and it's going to change the world to like oh no i'm so disillusioned mm. what, what is going on here to okay we, we maybe just need to mature a bit more and uh take the foot of the of the pedal and and just keep going and there is something there especially as you interlink it with other emerging technologies yes. and um you realize what else is going on there do you think enough of the right people are involved in it it's not and by the right people i mean like there's such a like not everyone in the world is tapped into this new way of thinking it's different it's like it's a from what i know from what i've heard and explored in the, in the blockchain and space like it's a whole new way of connecting a system essentially like the, the whole decentralized idea and i wonder if there are enough of the top minds dipping into that because there's still so much uh reward and economic gain to be had in our current understanding of systems and centralized um centralized databases and whatnot hmm. there's still so much to be gained there there's still so much uncharted territory in that realm sure. that i think yeah a lot of people are maybe still hacking away in that realm 
mm. uh, the more tangible realm. Whereas then, then there's this other group of people who's hacking away at this new realm, this decentralized realm. And I wonder if, I wonder if there need, like almost needs to be more people from the, from the first realm going over to the next one to, and that might accelerate it. I want, like that's what I'm, you know, the big, so the big entrepreneurs with the big levers and the big teams behind them and the, the, the smart minds and that's kind of what I'm going for. I wonder if there, there might be a tipping point. Yeah. I, I think you ought to look at stakeholders holistically and I think there are two correlations. As you get more adoption, you probably get more developers interested in developing in this technology. And I think on both sides, there has been a decent amount of growth and also signs of I don't know if I could say exponential growth, but even just looking at uh, meetups on ethereum.com, uh, on, on meetup.com, Ethereum meetups, meetups related to Ethereum um, grew over the years from like, uh, if we just take member numbers, I, I can't give you exact numbers, but I know last year it surpassed 1 million members that were part of meetup groups that, that were about Ethereum. And so that's a good indicator. And that prior was, was, was much smaller. And I think since 2016, it just started rising rapidly and it, is going to progress more and that will happen uh, I think in parallel to um, to adoption of, of this technology mm. just becoming wider and and that currently fundamentally is a UX problem still I think which um, which still constitutes your your end user and especially with B2B to C to have some sort of level of understanding of what's actually going on here whereas really what they should be focusing on is the the value proposition that that um, can be unlocked with using this new type of technology in conjunction with other existing technologies. Mm. And that also is an important point, I think, when it comes to the ease of, of people transitioning. Because like, if you build an Ethereum, you still need to understand uh, modern-day programming languages. You still need to build a front and a back end. You probably have service. And, and writing your smart contracts really is a small portion of of your overall system architecture, but it's a very important portion because it, it lives out there on the blockchain. And um, while you can have mechanisms in place to update these things, there should really be true um, representations of the flow of what is being facilitated. Do you think that there's not enough, I mean, I might be completely wrong on this. Do you think there's not enough um, economic incentive and alignment with, with the, with the blockchain solutions is it too uh, like decentralized and socialist and any one individual is doing it for you know the for the sake of the people whereas in the more in the in the current tech you you the centralized tech you're building for yourself you're building for your own prosperity and you know those we've seen how with those incentives uh, how people push stuff out and build and make and create and because yeah. um, the incentives are aligned. Sure. Whereas do you think with the blockchain stuff, the more socialist incentive side of things is holding back progress? And once, I mean, once it's figured out how to have like the individualistic incentives aligned, that things might mm. blow up. Mm. It's interesting because I think, this is a very unique uh, observation. Uh, like this hasn't really happened before in, in a, an emerging industry or an existing industry. Suddenly you're in an industry where you have um, people with radical ideas 
and lots of money at the same time. So the early wave of projects, which largely operated on a protocol layer, so building systems that other systems can be built on that then maybe cater to consumers or that again, other systems can be built on that cater to consumers. But these core protocols, which have such massive value propositions actually over the years, gained a lot of um, uh, value in in their uh, token or in, in the price of, of their crypto really. Do right? you like rent space on the protocol? Is that how it works? No, no not at all. Do you, <laughs> so okay. you said it grew in value. It grew in value. So have you heard of a, an ICO before? Yeah. Yeah. So an ICO, initial coin offering, is one model of, of funding a crypto project that was very prevalent in the earlier years um, as popularity started gaining and you know, in 2017, you had this like massive surge in yes. prices of, of Bitcoin and altcoins and it all was perception-based. So it's it's really a way of saying, hey, our our platform, our protocol operates on, on this uh, token or on this native token. Um, and there's this value proposition to, to this token. And um, we're going to issue, let's say, a third of it now in an initial coin offering. And um, the rest we're going to hold back. Some of it uh, we're going to keep to ourselves and some of it might go to investors or whatever. Yes. Um, and that's basically a way of creating uh, a marketplace for, it's like floating a company pretty much. And then it just, it's like the price of Bitcoin really just relates to our perception of the price of Bitcoin. If mm. we all collectively decided tomorrow that Bitcoin is worth zero, more than it's worth zero. And yes. if we decided it's worth $100,000, it's worth $100,000. And so these projects, um, so I think Ethereum had an initial coin offering at um, 0.31, so like 31 cents or something, US dollar cents. And um, over the course of, you know, up to like that peak in 2017, mm. was trading at um, one Ether at $1,300 or something. So that's a massive return on your investment. And of course, these projects hold back um, a portion of, of these tokens that are minted. And um, that is a massive capital. Even back then, Ethereum had raised $18 million. And, you know, that yes. creates a massive sort of funding mechanism. But a large part yeah. of which is also being used to create the ecosystem. So Flo, at the moment, you told me you are taking a new direction. You starting to get back into development, building little prototypes of your own. You told me you're setting up your website. So <laughs> what are you up, what are you up to at the moment, man? Um, yes, I'm up to some exciting stuff. I um, so I've been working for two years again now in um, the blockchain space with with Linum Labs, and then within that building Protea, which built uh, really economic systems for, for communities and that's some interesting stuff there but um, decided to uh, focus more on some other projects and take some new directions um, I am very interested in the open banking space which I've been watching since a while now and I think especially what's going to happen this year in the UK is, is going to be very interesting and we, we're just hitting that point of you know um, I don't know. I think there were some. So there's this great podcast uh, called Eleven FS, which talks about the fintech sector in the UK. Um, and I think one stat that was thrown around recently is that uh, we have 200 million known API calls, um, and, and and those kind of statistics really show that things are picking up. 
and uh, it's going to be very interesting to see what this technology will do to the consumer. So this is very much uh, an industry that I'm interested in. And um, then I'm also still quite close to, I think, the, the token engineering space. Um, uh, there's something to be done there and there's work to be done there. So I'd like to stay involved with that, definitely. Um, I have a little project going, which um, is going to be called sync.money. And essentially, it's the continuation of um, some of the economic uh, thinking behind FlexiFlyer. So these two factors, uh, I basically spent some time uh, standardizing some of these algorithms of matching uh, you know, consumers and suppliers in marketplaces and finding ways of uh, creating one transparent uh, algorithmic backbone of this financial ecosystem right. which is a marketplace and um, essentially provide uh, stakeholders in various different marketplaces so that's one of the the key value propositions find stakeholders in many different marketplaces who can benefit from these two factors so like the better we do collectively the more of a kickback everybody should get and then also the more risk individual stakeholders assume the more they should be rewarded uh, trying to challenge some of the fundamental underlying um, notions of, of uh, macroeconomics, really. So like this idea of maximizing shareholder value as one of the fundamental principles uh, beneath uh, macroeconomics has been shifting over the years. Um, and I think Airbnb, for example, this year in January released a, um, a statement that they'll be focusing on stakeholders uh, uh, rather than shareholders only, which means the wider ecosystem, including, you know, the community yeah. that they were building globally and locally. Um, and, and, and companies are really starting to shift away from this idea that it's, everything is profit-driven. It's, it's very important to be profitable, but it's also important to create systems that benefit beyond your, your close team. And so I'm very passionate about that. And I think the... The time is right now to be working with, with those kind of concepts and the world is very receptive. Um, so I'm building out a little um, POC for, for one use case, but really I'm wanting to build a protocol that um, other systems can be built on, which uh, can use these algorithms in different, different industries. And yeah, so I haven't quite decided yet. Um, I'm just getting back into coding, which is, which is fun. Um, but I'm, I'm probably going to pursue something like build out something in, in the fitness industry so a way of of uh, matching consumers with um like who, who for example gym memberships and applying this model so that um you actually have a more equal distribution of value in these systems and then i'm also open to um to just see what's out there so i'm i've been an entrepreneur um since university really and um i've you know, helped grow companies up to like 20 people. But um, I'm really also interested in, in getting involved with either some projects that have uh, high growth potential or ones that um, have a, a very good culture going um, that, that are already established in industries that I'm interested in. Um, and, and travel, I think, given my history, is another industry where, where I'm looking at. Um, yeah, so the future is a bit open, but... Um, Let's see. It sounds amazing, Flo. I'm super excited for you. Some of those things you mentioned, I really, really want to see kick off in a big way. So, yeah, hopefully. Yeah, so I'm excited to see where it goes. It's super. been so nice chatting to you.
it was fantastic. Thank you for having me and all the best with uh, your podcast. Thank you so much. Until next time. <laughs>